1: the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race-conscious way.
2: If we draw racially gerrymandered districts, particularly in a place where you have a small elite group that has cultivated a sociology of racial polarization to benefit themselves economically.
3: It seems to me that you're coming here and it's totally your right to do it but really saying change the way we look at Section 2 and its application. You
2: create districts where you basically have white candidates who have to compete as a zero-sum
4: game for the largest number of white voters. The only explicit reference to race in the Constitution is in the 15th Amendment, which prohibits racial discrimination in voting and gives Congress the authority to determine the contours of what laws are important to prohibit discrimination.
5: Hi, and welcome back to Slate's Amicus Podcast. This is a show about the courts, the law, and the U.S. Supreme Court, which gaveled in the 2022 term this past Monday. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the high court and the law for Slate Magazine. And I also wrote the brand new book, Lady Justice, about women, the law, and how it saves us, but also mm, quite the opposite. And I wrote about the lawyers who try to bend that seam toward justice. Today, we're going to celebrate the opening of the new term by taking you into two of the oral arguments heard in the court just this past week, a challenge to the Clean Water Act and a fairly existential debate over Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Maybe to the extent there's a hot take here at all, it is that Justice Katanji Brown Jackson is decidedly not going to be sitting around waiting to jump into the fray. Later on in the show, Slate Plus listeners are going to get a chance to hear Mark Joseph Stern's first take on the new term, and we're going to talk about Justice Jackson's impact, the Mar-a-Lago case, now headed to the Supreme Court but possibly destined to sit in the mailroom for a while, and, of course, James Madison's crystal flute. If you're not a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash amicusplus to find out About All the benefits of membership, which include ad-free versions of all of Slate's shows, bonus content like my conversation with Mark, and specials from other shows like Political Gab Fest and Slow Burn, and Slate Plus members never hit a paywall at Slate.com. And Slate Plus members support the work that we do here on the show and at the magazine, and for that we are truly, eternally grateful. So check it all out, Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. But first, the magical shrinking Voting Rights Act. A pair of hugely important cases were argued on Tuesday morning, probing an Alabama racial gerrymander. The cases were argued together as Merrill v. Milligan and Merrill versus Castor. This is the set of cases that puts whatever seems to be left of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act squarely onto the chopping block. The state of Alabama was in court on Tuesday arguing for congressional maps that allow black voters in Alabama to elect their preferred candidate in only one of the state's seven districts. That is to say 14 percent of those districts, even though black voters make up about 27 percent of the state's population. Two different sets of plaintiffs argued that those maps violate the Voting Rights Act's prohibition on race discrimination in voting. I'm joined this week by Evan Milligan and Duell Ross. Evan Milligan is executive director at Alabama Forward, a statewide civic engagement network working to advance democracy, and his is one of the groups that filed a lawsuit challenging redistricting in Alabama. Duell Ross is a senior counsel and director of professional development at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. He argued one of the cases at the Supreme Court this week. So maybe we'll start with you, Evan, Um, and I'm going to ask you to pan back and explain how we got here in these maps. But also, I think it requires explaining a little bit about your own work and also how this fight centers on what is known as the state of Alabama's black belt and its history and political context as part of the larger story.
2: Sure. Uh, Thanks for having us. Um, So I guess I could give some backstory on some of the advocacy work that we were doing last year. But before I say that, Duell and the staff there at LDF, we met them in the midst of outreach work we were doing all last year. We're a membership-driven organization at Alabama Ford. We have over 30 nonprofit advocacy groups that do everything from statewide work to very local grassroots work. And they were overwhelmingly resolute that in 2021, they wanted our organization to really be digging into redistricting. Once the census data was released in August, the um, Alabama state legislature's apportionment committee is the state body that's responsible for basically navigating through redistricting and producing a map for the legislature to vote on. So they had a notes and comments period after the data was released. And we were just really trying to encourage folks in our network and just neighbors and people who listen to our organizations to show up to provide sample maps, to provide examples about their understanding of the communities of interest in their locations that needed to be protected and not separated. Once the special session was called by our governor to bring all the legislatures back to Montgomery, our state capital, and just focus on getting a redistricted map passed for Congress, State House, State Senate, Board of Education, we were also active there with making sure that certain testimony got on the record and making sure that sample maps that we felt reflected commitment to the Voting Rights Act were submitted to the legislature as well. And that's really where we got to know LDF even more closely as we were dealing with the special session there was a series of maps and a letter that they actually provided, as well as ACLU Alabama, Greater Birmingham Ministries, one of the other plaintiffs, to just underscore how easy it could be for the state of Alabama to comply with the VRA. And we don't really see evidence of that letter and the maps that they provided long prior to litigation started. We don't see any evidence of that having been taken into consideration. So, uh, obviously, the State legislature passed. They voted in favor of the congressional map that is currently the map under the current election. The governor signed it. And then that's when we agreed to join the suit and file the suit. I
4: just wanted to say that Evan's done a really amazing job as an advocate in Alabama and his organization and the allies that they have are really the reason why we do this work. But to respond to a couple of points that you'd made earlier is, one, when you talk about proportionality, obviously there's disproportionality for African Americans, but there's substantial overrepresentation of white voters in Alabama's maps. The white voters are only 63% of the population, and yet they control about 85% of Alabama's maps because the state drew supermajority white districts. And even if there was a second district in which black voters could have an opportunity to elect their candidates of choice... White voters would still be overrepresented. They would still control about 73% of congressional districts and only be about 63% of the total population. And with respect to the Black Belt, a place that Evan knows far better than I do. It is a community that about 18 or more counties that runs through the middle of Alabama and was really formed by the fact that the some of the richest soil in the country is there. And that is why people, Americans brought slaves to that land to work it. And in the 150 years since slavery ended, really, that has been the focal point of racial discrimination and voting in Alabama and really in America. Selma, which is in the Black Belt, is where the Voting Rights Act was born. And still today, even though there were obviously victories that have occurred in Selma and Montgomery, really the hearts of the Black Belt, you still see Awful racial discrimination just in the last decade. In 2010, legislators in Alabama hatched a plot to try to suppress black voter turnout and called black voters Aborigines and illiterates while doing so. And in 2017, in a case that the Supreme Court had remanded, there was found to be racial gerrymandering in state legislative districts in the Black Belt and other places. And so, despite all these challenges, folks like Evan and others continue to fight there and yet continue to be set back by a lack of drinkable water, lack of good internet access, the lack of real representation in Congress that could help address some of these things.
5: I'm so glad that you said that. And I want to ask Evan just one other kind of table setting question, because I think we often start this conversation by just saying gerrymanders are bad and racial gerrymanders are really bad. But can you, just from your work on the politics side of this. Just explain to listeners what this does to politics, what a gerrymander of this sort does in terms of its impact on electoral politics in the state.
2: Sure. So there's three things that we could think about in terms of racial gerrymandering. One is its impact on just representation of one of the poorest parts, of, well, culturally rich and materially poor areas of the state and really the Western world, which is the Black Belt, we could talk about the way that these racially gerrymandered districts impact the culture and the sort of tenor of governance and politics and political speech. And then also just talk about traditions of leadership development. So starting with representation, if the Black Belt as a region from the Mississippi border to the Georgia border is you know collection of of over twenty counties, and as duwell said, these are descendants in many instances of people brought there to build the plantation economy that ultimately goes on to fuel the growth of the U.S. financial sector and et cetera, et cetera. So there's certainly a rich history of contribution to the state's economy and to the national economy, and then we could talk about cultural contributions. You know, blues, gospel. Any style of just Americana music that was created here, there's a connection not only to the Black Belt of Alabama, but just the region of the Black Belt in this country. And to the extent that people like rock and roll and think that's a, an art worth celebrating, then there's certainly a region that we, we you would think we would want to protect and know more about. And, you know, in this region, it's, it's often dealt with in the opposite way. It's still the case that the commodities industry rules the state of Alabama. It's the strongest special interest group, chickens, cotton, timber farmers, corporate farmers, and they have a very strong presence in the Black Belt. But you also have some of the highest rates of inequality and maternal mortality, infectious disease, even hookworm, and these sorts of diseases that we don't often see in the United States can be more prevalent there. And so there's an imbalance in terms of the beauty and the grace of the people and then also the material conditions that they're living in and because the state of alabama's the sociology that sort of populates our state representatives is not one that lends towards a great deal of commitment to this region the municipal governments in the area are dealing with things that small towns and rural towns around the country have been dealing with for the last 30 years in terms of population drainage So those towns don't have the tax base to independently fund the sort of multi-sector development that would really be needed to make a real dent in the Black Bill. And that leads us towards, you know, well, who's left? Philanthropy? Philanthropy is only going to do so much. So. That's where the feds will come in. And if you don't have those advocates, like right now we have one of our seven congressional districts that really has an electoral base that lives in the Black Belt. The rest of the Black Belt is divided among these other districts. So having a second opportunity district that includes substantial communities in the Black Belt would increase the amount of federal um, role players that are sensitive to this region. Assuming that is drawn in a way that gives those communities an opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice, which is what our suit is all about. And then just to go through those last two points really quickly, the obvious impact on the polarizing nature of political speech. If we draw racially gerrymandered districts, particularly in a place where you have an elite, a small elite group that has cultivated a sociology of racial polarization to benefit themselves economically, then you create districts where you basically have white candidates who have to compete its a zero-sum game for the largest number of white voters. They know that if you're in that district, non-white voters don't give you a competitive advantage just because of how the district is drawn. So, well, where are white voters in Alabama consuming information? What's driving their thoughts? And At this particular moment, the answer that the candidates seem to be coming up with is that they have to really compete with talking points that are often more extreme. And so if they have to do that to get to the primary and the district is drawn in a way where whoever wins a certain primary is going to win the general, then now we have ideas and representatives coming into mainstream political bodies with a certain speech and a certain tone that is not really conducive towards building multicultural democracy. And then the last part is just in terms of leadership development. If we think about the movie Selma or anything that you've read and thought about in terms of the Voting Rights Act, you have these decades of, you know, folks that are at that point, they were four generations, maybe three generations removed from enslavement. And you have folks doing really sacrificial organizing and putting themselves and their families in harm's way that culminates with Bloody Sunday. They don't go across the bridge, then come back in the Selma to Montgomery Marsh, and shortly thereafter, the signage of the Voting Rights Act. But that narrative, it's not just about that one moment. There's a continuous thread of that type of leadership development that happens in our communities. And by stunting the ability of Black voters in these communities to choose a candidate of their choice, not only does it disincentivize some of the brightest and most selfless leaders to stay and to build families in their home communities, but it also robs the voters of a chance to develop the political discernment needed to really go from, okay, here's how I calculate my loyalties for city council or local school board, but here's how I need to scale up if I'm thinking about how to influence the outcome of a congressional election. And without being placed in that type of situation to make you know, informed decisions about representatives, we don't have the opportunity to develop that political discernment and just really have a broader scale of the map. So all of those things play out when we're talking about racial gerrymandering
5: We will be back in just a minute after some words from our wonderful sponsors. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know that my book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, published by Penguin Press, is available wherever you buy books. And we're going to pop a link in the show notes for today's show. I also wanted to let you know that Lady Justice is available as an audio book and that Slate has an audio bookstore where you can buy it. You can get a 25% discount. When you go to slate.com slash justice and enter promo code amicus, that's slate.com slash justice and enter promo code amicus, and thank you for supporting the pink book about the law that thrillingly became a New York Times bestseller and Oprah's number one pick for nonfiction this fall. This episode is brought to you by
0: Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
6: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this.
5: I'm going to turn to you to do the <laughs> heroic work now of locating us in this particular case. And that requires both, I think, just sketching out what the Voting Rights Act provides and also both what happened below and also the extent to which the U.S. Supreme Court has already intervened in this case. And so that's I know that's a big lift, but.
4: Sure. To take a step back and kind of explain the case and the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965 and it. Had two real components. One is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is a general prohibition against racial discrimination in voting. And two is Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which basically states with a history of discrimination, mostly in the South, but also parts of the North, like California and New York City, were covered, that had a history of discrimination basically had to ask permission from the federal government before they could implement new voting rules. So in 2013, in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, The Supreme Court all but invalidated Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and it really freed up Southern states and other states that had been covered to do all sorts of gerrymandering, passing voter ID laws, cutting back on early voting, all things that they would have been hard pressed to do when Section 5 was in effect. And one of the things the Supreme Court said in Shelby County in 2013 is, you know, we don't have to worry about the fact that Section 5 has been weakened. We still have Section 2, and you can use that to stop discriminatory maps, discriminatory voting laws before they go into effect. And so that is what Evan and the other plaintiffs sued under it was Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which for at least the last 40 years has primarily been used to attack discriminatory redistricting plans, discriminatory plans that make it harder for Black voters to elect their preferred candidates of choice. And what we alleged in this case was a very straightforward Section 2 claim. We allege that Black voters are a substantial part of Alabama's population, We allege that because of racially polarized voting, which means that black voters and white voters in elections generally prefer different candidates. Often black voters prefer black candidates. White voters prefer white candidates. That black candidates can never win in districts that are, you know, 70 percent white as six of Alabama's seven congressional districts are. And it's not just proving that disproportionality. It's also showing that it's possible to draw an additional district that's reasonably compact. It's also showing some of the things that Evan was talking about, not just racially polarized voting in general elections, but also in Democratic and Republican primaries. Even in the 2016 Republican primary, Ben Carson got only a small handful of votes from white voters in in that election. And it, it goes beyond simply Democrats versus Republicans. This is really an issue that is specific to the uh, Black voters and racial discrimination. And so we had to prove not just this disproportionality, but that uh, racial discrimination in all sorts of areas, in voting and education and racial appeals, like uh, congressional candidates saying that there's a war on whites in Alabama, saying that the Reconstruction Amendments basically destroyed American families, all these things that we had to show to prove a violation. And three judges two of whom were appointed by President Trump, one of whom had been appointed by both President Reagan and President Clinton, unanimously found overwhelming evidence in a 200-some-page opinion that came out at the end of January of this year saying that we had proven our Voting Rights Act claim. And Alabama, not satisfied with that, sought a stay of that order in the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court, in a five to four vote, said that Alabama could go ahead and use the map that the district court had found was discriminatory. I think what's interesting about the breakdown of that five to four vote is Chief Justice Roberts voted to deny the stay. Chief Justice Roberts agreed that the district court had applied existing law correctly. And then Justice Kavanaugh joined by Justice uh, Alito said in a concurrence, essentially that it was too close to the election uh, to change the map, which obviously we disagree with. The decision came out in January. The election wasn't until at least three months away. But one thing Justice Kavanaugh said in his concurrence was that there's basically a 50-50 chance of plaintiffs could win and defendants could win, and we will see how it goes in oral argument in the fall. And so that is what we just finished this week.
5: I do wonder if one of the two of you wants to explain. I think one of the things that was so complicated at oral argument was trying to understand what Alabama's Solicitor General Edmund Laqueur was even asking for the new test to be. And I'll play some audio. Here's Elena K.
3: What strikes me about this case is that under our precedent, it's kind of a slam dunk. If you just take our existing precedent the way it is, and the three judges below all found this, the three judges below said, this is an easy case. It's not one of the hard ones. It's not one of the boundary line cases. It seems to me that you're coming here and it's totally your right to do it, but really saying change the way we look at Section 2 and its application.
5: And I wonder if one of the two of you wants to help me think through, because it was very slippery, what it is that Alabama wanted to see happen here. Do you want to take that, duel, and then we'll give it to Evan?
4: Yeah, I think the issue is that because the case is such a slam dunk under existing precedent, what happened with Alabama's briefing is that they made a number of arguments. So they basically they argued in part that the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. They argued that the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply to congressional redistricting. They argued that, you know, essentially, if Alabama can come up with any facially neutral rule, that the law should be upheld. But all of those things, the court has said as recently as this year that the Voting Rights Act does apply to redistricting, that the use of race to remedy Voting Rights Act violations is constitutional, and that merely being aware of race and redistricting doesn't violate the Voting Rights Act. And so I think that the trouble that even Justice Alito seemed to be having is to sort of pinpoint down Alabama what exactly their arguments were. And it seems to be what they were hanging their hat on is this idea of facially neutral justifications for their map. But really, that is not the rule. Um, If it were the rule that you could come up with some facially neutral justification for a discriminatory law, then that would allow things like literacy tests, right? There's a facially neutral justification for a literacy test, but we know it had really devastating results on Black representation. And here, what Alabama's proposal is that they want to rely on core retention to say that they've always drawn these maps the same way since 1972. The Voting Rights Act was amended in 1982 because states had drawn their maps in a way that locked Black voters out of the political process. And so it has always been about changing the way in which states do business, not about letting them continue to do the same thing. And I think even Alabama's reliance on core retention is deeply suspect because in 1972, George Wallace was the governor of Alabama. In 1972, Alabama was engaging in other forms of overt discrimination. And it was only in 1972 that Alabama split One of the communities that were trying to connect Mobile from the Black Belt in a way that really depressed Black representation and created these supermajority white districts in the first place, just as Black voters were beginning to register and vote in the years after the Voting Rights Act.
5: Evan, do you want to add anything to what Dual just said? You know, it seemed at points like we were hearing Alabama say, as long as it's not shouted from the rooftops that this is being done with racial animus, it's okay. And there was a nice moment when Sonia Sotomayor essentially said, they're very scrupulously careful to protect the integrity and history of white districts. Uh, there doesn't seem to be that kind of solicitude for black districts. And it just was very hard to understand particularly because i think throughout the argument you had some of the justices begging him to back off this maximalist argument that he was making did you come away with any sense of where it is that the alabama test w- w- what it is that they're even pushing for by the end of the argument
2: no i didn't um it didn't <laughs> seem like the justices did either but one of the things that seemed clear was there's a culture of um, sort of the performance of race neutrality, that there's a way that Alabama sometimes is associated with being polite or like the culture here is one of being nice and welcoming of strangers and things like that. And I've not really found that to be the case in my lifetime. I think people here are very humble and earnest, but that doesn't always point towards being nice, if there's a way to say it. And there's a performance of, well, we have this history, but, you know, we don't talk about that part of the family history. We're going to talk about the things that we can agree on. So our college football teams and, you know, various cultural festivals, that's a fixation. And then any attempt to talk about some of the structural racism, racial trauma, things that are even happening today in ways that are highly racialized. are. Prison system, for example. There's this deep cultural reluctance on the behalf of some Alabamians to actually embrace those conversations. And it, it, it was really strange watching that play out this week in the court because the attorney who was arguing for the state apparently is somebody we went to the same college. I don't know him, but knowing the background that this person went through to get to that courtroom is not an easy path. And so I'm trying to think about people I knew similar to that lawyer who might have been more conservative than me, but were very hardworking students. And just trying to understand, like, how do you get from where I know he came from academically to be in that courtroom? It wasn't just the argument that it was adverse to our interests, but there wasn't a coherent intellectual thread that could square with the large majority of congressional history and and supreme court precedent on this particular issue so the state would have needed to have really come aggressively with a worldview and a theory that they felt fully flat-footed behind they knew they had the votes and then never deviate from that and there was this the lawyer said at one point um well, you know, if this were a case where race was in the lines, then, yeah, I could see there being a race consciousness. But there's like this that that becomes a an infinite loop, because in order to establish that there's race in the lines, there has to be some kind of race consciousness at the beginning. But if we're saying that we have to be race neutral at the beginning because of the, so then you never can establish so when do you establish an, the need for an intervention? And I felt like you're showing in real time why this test that we have currently is the right test and why the state of Alabama failed it.
4: I don't know, Duell, how, how you felt about that. I think that's exactly right. I think one other thing that was really telling in the argument was when Justice Barrett said, essentially, you know, she accepted that the Voting Rights Act had been amended in 1982 to go beyond intentional discrimination claims. And she also accepted that the use of race was permissible to remedy racial discrimination. And that has been precedent for at least the last 30 years in the Supreme Court. And so if you accept both of those premises, then really Alabama doesn't have an argument because if facially neutral rules can still violate the Voting Rights Act, then plaintiffs win. If it's okay to use race a little bit to remedy a Voting Rights Act violation, then plaintiffs again win. And I think one thing that's also really telling in addition to what Evan's saying is that Alabama, at the same time as it drew its congressional maps, drew a board of education plan that has eight congressional districts, two of which are majority Black. And their board of education districts look very similar to the proposed districts that, that plaintiffs are offering in this case. They connect mobile to the Black Belt, something that Alabama did for a uh, hundred years before 1972, that doesn't present any problems, but Alabama suddenly has an issue doing essentially adopting its own Board of Education map for Congress. One other thing that I think is really important that Evan had pointed out with respect to representation is, is how this plays out in real time. As I said, the Black Belt has real issues with a lack of proper sanitation, lack of drinkable water, a lack of internet access. All things that were recently dealt with in a bipartisan bill that Congress passed last year, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And yet the only representative from Alabama who voted for that bill was Congresswoman Sewell, who represents the majority black district. And I think that's really telling that there are the Black Belt has split up right now into four congressional districts and only one person from that delegation voted for a bill that was bipartisan and that would bring real resources to the Black Belt. To,
5: to this point that you made, uh, duel at the beginning about how first there was Section 5, then they took away Section 5, but they promised Section 2, but then they took away Section 2, but they didn't take it away for vote dilution, but now they are. And here's Elena Kagan, you know, saying all of that. In
3: recent years, the statute has fared not well in this court. Shelby County looks at Section 5, and it says, no, Section 5, we don't need that anymore. And one of the things it says is we have Section 2. And then Brnovich comes along, and that's a Section 2 case. And the court says, you know what? uh, Section 2, they're really dilution claims. Um, You know, this is a denial claim. And and, uh, so we can construe that very narrowly. But of course, there's just all these cases that are dilution claims. That's really what Section Two is about. And now here we are. Section Two is a dilution claim. This, you know, the classic Section Two dilution claim. And you're asking us essentially to cut back substantially on our 40 years of precedent and to make this too extremely difficult to prevail on. So what's left?
5: And then there's this astonishing moment when Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, in her first week on the bench, above and beyond, I think her just explicitly calling out the court on purporting to be upholding the Voting Rights Act while it is gutting it from the inside out. But then there's this extraordinary turn, and I think it's probably the moment everyone was talking about, when Justice Jackson— lifts up the actual language from the reports around the 14th Amendment to say, what are you talking about when you say this is a race-blind project? And I want to play the audio for you because it's really remarkable in several respects.
1: I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, in a race-conscious way. That they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen, um, in during the Reconstruction period, uh, were actually uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the a uh, report that was submitted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, Reconstruction which drafted the 14th Amendment. Um, and that report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. The legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not not a race-neutral or race-blind idea in terms of the remedy.
5: And I just wonder if either of you or both of you just wants to react... To this amazing moment of the first African American woman justice using actual like text in history, right? This is the Federalist Society, the Conservative Legal Movement's project to refute the claim that this is a race-blind enterprise.
4: Yeah, I definitely think that we often talk about the Constitution and forget that we actually had a second founding after the Civil War. I this will go back. A long time. But I remember in middle school, a, a student was talking about the greatness of our founding and having my middle school teacher at, a long time ago saying like, well, we fought a civil war because the first draft of the Constitution didn't work. Right. And we had to add a 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment to ensure that black people and other people of color and women and a whole uh, everyone who was left out could be included in the Constitution. And I think that's exactly what Justice Jackson was correctly pointing out. The only explicit reference to race in the Constitution is in the 15th Amendment, which prohibits racial discrimination in voting and gives Congress the authority to, you know, determine the contours of what laws are important to to prohibit discrimination. Here, you have it, the 13th, 14, 14th 14, and 15th Amendment are really staring you in the face and saying, this is what is prohibited and Congress has the right to enact laws to justify the contours of what rights should be protected. And I'm glad that Justice Jackson made that point.
5: And I want to congratulate you on um, arguing at the court. That's a hairy proposition on the best of days. But I want to give Evan a chance to kind of, you know, you were talking about this loop of you're perpetually in a world that is imprinted by race and constantly being told, now we're going to set the clock on everything goes to race neutral. And I wonder if you had some sense walking out of that argument that at minimum, everybody in the room understood that to suggests that the 13th 14th 15th amendment or the voting rights act were supposed to be race blind propositions was just a historical and completely refuted by justice jackson.
2: Yeah, that was an amazing moment just to witness and I was wondering as it was happening like how it was striking so many people in the courtroom at duell's table at the alabama table and being an alabamian in this position, there's a tension around it because I like to say we're good at things other than being racist and fighting racism here. If we could just get to the point where we could focus on the biodiversity of the state, like we have more waterways and types of flora and fauna than any other state, and it's like all of these really cool nuances about the state that I think you know, if we had more resources to just really celebrate but we can't do those things in a way that is anti-democratic and anti-human rights. so of course people like me and the other plaintiffs are going to stand up when the state moves in that direct and it's exhausting because we have in the same state some of the most advanced we have the most advanced military colleges in the country in montgomery you have maxwell gunner air force base so any four-star, three-star general and any of the branches, they have to come here to do a term of study. You have things in Huntsville related to exploration of space. And then you have the hookworm stuff. You have the highest maternal mortality. So it's like in the same place and to sit up and to my whole lifetime, see a state constantly defending that record instead of saying, maybe we have an issue. Like why defend it? It's very exhausting. One of the things that I saw in that moment when Justice Jackson was really given some of the history of the Reconstruction Amendments is like, why would the state of Alabama even walk itself into that? They created this Hollywood moment and it really shows one of the states that's pushing the line most heavily in terms of anti-critical race theory and talking about if that is a state that gets caught unprepared for that moment. And I wouldn't say that this is the case for that legal team, but it's just telling that there was a window that was left open for her to educate that entire courtroom. The state could have just, you know, precluded that by referencing some of the history and then saying, but this and qualifying it, saying this is how this is different. But to have no response on the front end anticipates this idea that, well, this won't even be brought up. Why are people that comfortable When it's only the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, like why wouldn't you presume at least one justice would have a question about that? It's because this sociology of what we don't talk about that because it discomforts me. But there's rich history and personal growth that can come not only for school children, but for professionals. Clearly, when we have to confront these sorts of topics and really look at where our institutions come from, the reluctance to do that is a huge disservice to the very people that that they are being paid to serve. And so I, I felt both of those things in that moment.
5: It's so interesting, Evan, because you're setting on its head— Chief Justice John Roberts' famous claim that the only way to get past race is to get past race. And I love what you're saying, which is there's actually an amazing and powerful and healing way to get past race, but it doesn't come by fiat from the Supreme Court telling us to get over it. This is the exact backward way of doing the work. And I think that the work that you both did and the work that a lot of the justices did to make that point really visible, not just inside the court, but to all the people who were listening to arguments, you know, on C-SPAN in their cars, I think is a really essential project right now. So I cannot thank the both of you enough for joining us. Evan Milligan is executive director at Alabama Forward. It's a statewide civic engagement network working to advance democracy. And this was one of the advocacy groups filing a lawsuit challenging the redistricting in Alabama. Duell Ross is senior counsel and director of professional development at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. He argued part of this case at the Supreme Court. I cannot thank you enough for your time, and I look forward to hearing that maybe things are going to change because of the exact conversation that we are having today. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thank you again for having us.
5: We are going to take a short break. Now we're going to turn to a case about the Clean Water Act. On the very first Monday of October, the issue before the court might have felt a little familiar to you. Last term saw a challenge to the EPA's authority to curb emissions from power plants. And this year, the court agreed to hear a challenge to its authority to protect waterways. The issue in a nutshell... What waterways and wetlands can be protected under the Clean Water Act? And this case actually dates back to 2007 when EPA officials told Chantel and Michael Sackett that they had to stop backfilling their property on Priest Lake in Idaho. The EPA said to them that the wetlands were, quote, waters of the United States and thus protected by the Clean Water Act. The Sacketts disagreed. They took the EPA to court. Now, in order to understand all of this, you have to understand a badly fractured four to four to one opinion from 2006. That's when the court handed down Rapanos versus United States. And Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote alone to say that any one body of water needed only a, quote, significant nexus with a navigable stream to put it under federal jurisdiction. But Justice Kennedy no longer speaks for the world because Justice Kennedy is gone from the court and his views are out of style. And the Sackets really want the court to embrace a position that was taken in that case by Justice Antonin Scalia, who wrote that the waters of the United States should only include, quote, Geographic features that are described in ordinary parlance as streams, oceans, rivers, and lakes. It seems very confusing. In fact, it is not that confusing. And joining us to discuss Monday's arguments in Sackett versus EPA is Earth Justice Senior Vice President Sam Sankar. Earth Justice is the largest public interest environmental law firm in the country with nearly 200 lawyers representing communities, Indian tribes and environmental groups because, as Sam says, the earth needs a good lawyer. Sam has been working on environmental issues throughout his career, which has included service as a line attorney at the Justice Department's Environment and Natural Resources Division. He's also worked, wait for it, as a boat captain. Sam, welcome to Amicus.
7: Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here.
5: Uh, You're just going to have to tell us the boat captain story. Sorry.
7: Long ago and far away, I graduated from college and I went to work at a Boy Scout scuba diving training facility down in Florida. And I had worked at a marine laboratory over a summer and run one of their boats. And so I had a captain's license and the Boy Scouts were only too happy to get this random former Eagle Scout who had a boat license to run their dive boats for a while. And that was right before Hurricane Andrew, which was the last giganto hurricane to hit that area. And So Hurricane Andrew ended my career as a boat captain and sent me off to use my other skills as a machinist, as it turns out. So that's how I supported myself for a while.
5: I'm only obsessing on this, of course, because it seems as though part of the Sackett's argument is, and I'm going to date myself, but I know you will understand, that unless you are Captain Stubing driving the love boat through a body of water, it cannot be regulated. And so I love that you were Captain Stubing from the love boat in a prior life. But maybe let's just start with you telling me, Sam, whether I have mischaracterized the issue in Sackett, I think that for years and years, the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers, who are tasked with enforcing the Clean Water Act, had essentially agreed that almost anything, whether it's arroyos or mudflats, could be deemed waters of the United States so long as their destruction or degradation would affect navigable waters, right? And this was a very broad definition. It gave broad latitude to do what the Clean Water Act was supposed to do, which is restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. And that's been changing in a series of cases. And I want to know if I've A, mischaracterized how it used to be, how it is now, and maybe you can walk us through how it's changed.
7: Sure. First of all, I commend anybody who tries to wade into these cases and explain the arc of these various definitions and the the history over time, because as we saw at argument on Monday, it takes a while even after it's been briefed and even after you've seen the parties talk about how what they think the answer to be is. It takes question after question to really pin down the advocates to say, what exactly is your theory? You've basically got it right. The important part to remember is that Congress used this narrow phrase, navigable waters, but then defined it with a very expansive phrase, waters of the United States. And shortly after Congress passed the Clean Water Act in 1972, the Army Corps of Engineers published a fairly narrow regulatory definition that adhered to that kind of narrow navigable waters view. And everybody threw their hands up and said, no, no, no. Congress was trying to make big changes here, and you're not going to be able to protect all of the waters if you just protect those narrow ones instead, because after all, water flows downhill. Little arroyos turn into big arroyos, turn into the navigable waters. Wetlands are the headwaters and the source and and the protection for a lot of the waters of the United States. So after a short period of time, the Army Corps of Engineers issued new regulations with a much more expansive interpretation. They did those, by the way, pursuant to a court order, And this whole time, of course, various industry groups were very concerned about this, and they were lobbying like Matt in Congress to get Congress to rewrite the Clean Water Act and make it more narrow. Instead, Congress in 1977 actually amended the act in a way that the court has acknowledged ratified the Army Corps' new regulations. And ever since then, there's been this back and forth between, in my view, the science and the purpose of the act— the purpose of the act that you described, chemical, biological preservation of our nation's waters and the science telling you what you need to do to get there, and a thread of deregulatory and very much industry-funded advocacy to say, oh, no, it's this narrowest possible bright-line definition.
5: So, Sam, can you help us understand what the Sackett's argument, in this precise case, about why their definition of navigable should be adopted. And I guess it's as simple as, again, tell me if I'm being unfair. Their property is not, in fact, quote, adjacent to a lake that is located about 300 feet from their land because there's a road between the two. And as I understand it, also the road is built over what would have been water.
7: So here's the Sackett's proposal. First, it's worth saying that the Sackett's land is a test case. And nobody doubts that when the Pacific Legal Foundation shows up and starts representing you and you have dozens of amicus briefs filed by industry, you are a vehicle. (laughs) You are a vehicle for a campaign. So the Sackett's argument is that their piece of land, which is 30 feet from a stream and 300 feet from the lake, is not covered by the act because it is not, quote, adjacent. Now, that word adjacent was a football that a lot of the justices and advocates kicked around pretty hard on Monday. The Sackets say that adjacent means touching. It means visually indistinguishable. Adjacent means, as they describe, if you wade out from the wetland, you just get into the water and you don't quite know when you're out of the wetland and into the water. Moreover, when they talk about that water, they think of that water and again, as I understand it, it really actually was quite difficult to appreciate from argument. But as their position appears to be that that water has to be traditionally navigable. That water has to be something that, that Captain Steuben can sail the love boat down. And if not the love boat, at least some sort of smaller boat. That's their position. Now, the trick with that position is that, as even Justice Kavanaugh and several others pointed out, geez, adjacent in the dictionary, which, of course, is the magic Tool that the textualists use for everything. Adjacent in the dictionary doesn't just mean next to. And even those justices who grew up very far away from the w- western water said, "Is an apartment building?" I think Justice Kagan said, "Is an apartment building adjacent to another one if there's a street in between?" And that question about adjacency became super important in arguments. And so the Sackets are saying, number one, we're not adjacent to Priest Lake, which we concede is navigable water. And it's not good enough to be adjacent to this little stream that's just 30 feet away, separated by a road. That's basically their position.
5: And I guess this brings us to, as you said, some improbable support from justices like Kavanaugh. A lot of justices who seem to feel that perhaps the Sackett's position was... Going too far. Does that signal to you that maybe this very maximalist view is too much even for some of the conservatives on the court?
7: I hope so, is the short answer. There certainly were questions from Chief Justice Roberts, from Justice Kavanaugh, and to some extent from Justice Barrett. That signaled that they were a little nervous with this expansive position, which is, you know, fundamentally the Justice Scalia position from the Rapanos decision that you mentioned in 2006. In particular, Justice Kavanaugh said, you know, seven presidential administrations have said that adjacent wetlands are covered even if they are separated. Even the Trump administration would have covered wetlands that were separated by berms or barriers or roads. And that's a tough question when Justice Kavanaugh asks you, how come you are on a more deregulatory interpretation of the Clean Water Act than the Trump administration is? So uh, I, I think that there is some concern among those justices. And... I'm pleased to see that because it means that they are at least grappling with the text and the purpose of the act and the years of regulation in between instead of doing what Justice Scalia did in Rapanos, obsessing about whether water or waters was plural and saying, I can figure it all out from there. Whether that kind of traditional legal analysis, the thing that judges are supposed to be doing, is what drives their decision making in this case or whether it's actually the ideological agenda that many of them brought to the court is going to be important. And we'll see in the opinion. And as you know, it's a long way from argument to an opinion. And I don't want to read tea leaves too much. But I do think that there's a chance that what they saw at argument and what they read in the briefs leads them to be a little bit careful in this.
5: I wonder, Sam, if you would speak to a theme that I've been writing about and Mark Joseph Stern has been writing about, which is, you know, as part of efforts at this larger deregulatory project, you just keep hearing this theme. And I hear it so often from Justice Neil Gorsuch about meddling ineffectual comically inept, if not bad faith, government lawyers who just really want to put good people in jail, right? Like, that's what they want. And this was a big theme in the argument in Sackett, where there's this sense that this is just about tricking people who can't figure out what the test is so that you can send them to jail for trying to develop their lands. And maybe an acute version of this is Justice Gorsuch saying, if the federal government doesn't know, how is a person subject to criminal time in federal prison supposed to know? And I just wonder if you have any reflections on this sort of effort to say that government attorneys who are tasked with doing, as you said, the hard work of explaining what the test is and trying to enforce the test are now suddenly these mustache-twirling, evil malfactors who just want to put good folks like the Sacketts in prison for not knowing what the test is. D- am, am I overreading?
7: Oh, Dahlia, where to begin? <laughs> so having been an attorney at the Justice Department, I can tell you, number one, that no Justice Department attorney— has any time to go after these super marginal cases in a civil proceeding, let alone in a criminal one. You'd get creamed. There's no way you're going to go into that and win that case, number one. Number two, all of these enforcement agencies are vastly underfunded. The problem that we've got right now is not that they're waiting in the wings on every street corner to get somebody. The problem is that polluters everywhere are getting away because we don't have the enforcement apparatus to do anything about it. Another thing, if the Sackets are the best folks that industry can bring forward for their example of the innocent landowner mousetrapped by the oppressive federal government, that kind of paints a good picture. The Sacketts bought a piece of land that had already been identified as containing wetlands covered by the Clean Water Act. The prior owners had been told that in an official determination. The Sacketts own an excavation and construction company. They used their own excavation and construction company to dump 1,400 cubic yards of gravel onto this. If you look at the pictures in the joint appendix, you can see potentially why they didn't go out and ask for another determination because it was pretty obvious that this stuff was, there's standing water all over the place. And the reason the jackbooted thugs of the federal government showed up is because the neighbors called and said, hey, these guys are filling in a wetland on this pristine lake. Can't you all do something about this? This is a problem. So I think this characterization is really unfair and wrong. It is one that is absolutely being pushed by a set of industry and right-wing interests, and it has no real relationship to what's happening on the ground. Over and over, a couple of the conservative justices asked questions, making it seem as if there was no way a landowner could find out for themselves what was going on, when over and over, the government attorney said, you can get a free determination from the Army Corps of Engineers. They come out there and they tell you. And if you don't like that determination, you can sue about it. You can go to federal court and say they're wrong. And even if they say it is a wetland, that doesn't mean you can't develop. It just means you need to get a permit. So this really frustrates me. I'm sorry to go on for so long, but this whole line of philosophical argument just doesn't match up with reality.
5: Yeah, no, and I think it's such a theme. And as I said, you've written really eloquently about this larger deregulatory project and, you know, an effort to just somehow make it seem as though every time the government takes action to <laughs> protect our environment, they're immediately cast as bad actors. But I guess I'm thinking about, you know, you clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor. I'm really struck by Ketanji Brown Jackson's voice in this argument, Are actually just straight up reading text, like doing the conservative legal movement work of reading the statute. And I wondered if you have any thoughts about this newest justice. It's in so many ways a striking moment. You know, the first African-American woman, but also... Really interesting to have a fourth woman on the Supreme Court. And I can't help but wondering what you think in any global way, Sam, uh, what Sandra Day (laughs) O'Connor would be thinking about Ketanji Brown Jackson's performance this week, her first week at the court.
7: What was great to see is that Justice Jackson came out of the gates asking questions about what Congress was trying to do with this law. What was the purpose of the law? And that's a very Justice O'Connor inquiry. Oh, God, Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia, you're off there with the commas and the plurals. And you're, Justice Thomas, you're looking at what happened in 1743. And here I'm reading the law and seeing what the context was when Congress passed this law. The rivers were on fire. We were losing 450,000 acres of wetlands a year. They were trying to do something about that. So how do we read these words, which as Justice O'Connor, one of the only former legislators in the court, she knew that the legislation is not perfect, it's inartful, and the words aren't always perfect. So she tried to give meaning to the goals of the statute. It's great to see Justice Jackson ask that. The other thing that's very O'Connor-esque, or potentially very O'Connor-esque about this case uh, brings up parallels to the Maui County case that Earth Justice argued a couple of years ago, where once again, it was a Clean Water Act case where the industry and industry interest and the Trump administration were pushing this very tight, bright line rule for where Clean Water Act jurisdiction essentially ends. And in the end, Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts went kind of O'Connor-esque. They said, oh, it's really hard to write these bright line tests. We're going to hand it To the chief of the balancing test, and now that Justice O'Connor's gone, Justice Breyer. And Justice Breyer wrote this opinion said, there's lots of factors. You have to consider these things. And we want agencies to write good rules. And we need people to recognize that effectuating these acts is sometimes a little messy. And there are line drawing problems. And we do the best we can. So... My hope is that enough of the conservative justices see the light in this case, as they did in Maui, to recognize that precise line drawing isn't easy and that you should rely on science. That would be a very Justice O'Connor result. And I think that would be a great result. And does their ideology take over? And do they say we're going to do a bright line test, even if it's not quite right? We'll see.
5: And Sam, before we say goodbye, I think I want to ask you, because we've just had a a pretty arcane conversation about statutory interpretation and about text and about fighting about what the Clean Water Act means and does, but can you just give us a sense of what happens if the Sackets prevail or this view of the Clean Water Act prevails? What's the real-life impact going forward?
7: Well, as Justice Kavanaugh himself said, this is not just about this little wetland, it's about a lot more, and a lot more to the tune of 45 million acres of wetlands that could lose protection under the Sackett's interpretation. Moreover, the Sackett's interpretation of what constitutes a navigable water could also have tremendous impacts because they would exclude smaller and ephemeral streams. And 60% of streams in this country are ephemeral, and that number gets even higher in the American West. And of course, as always, these impacts fall heaviest on populations that have the least political power and that have been historically targeted for various kinds of oppression. And that's why Earth Justice is representing 18 tribes in this case. For example, the Fond du Lac Band that we represent 50% of their reservation is wetlands. The Pueblo of Laguna, who we represent, 80 to 90 percent of their water comes from ephemeral streams. So the real world impact is real for every person in this country who gets their water from surface water. That's a lot of us and especially for tribes and communities that rely more directly on surface waters and wetlands.
5: Sam Sankar is Senior Vice President of Earth Justice, and Earth Justice is the largest public interest environmental law firm in the country, with almost 200 lawyers representing communities, Indian tribes, and environmental groups that are working to protect health, to preserve wildlife, and to advance clean energy and combat climate change. Sam, it is such a treat having you on the show, and I really want to thank you for putting on the captain's hat and just appropriating this ridiculous Captain Stubing role that I have assigned to you today.
7: (laughs) I'll be, I'll I'll see you on the Lido deck.
5: (laughs) And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so very much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio and Ben Richmond is senior director of operations for podcasts at Slate. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks. Until then, take good care of yourselves.